Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we're... My dad opened up the series for us last week as uh, we wanted to take uh, a number of weeks and just look at uh, the nature and the character of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And if, if you remember, some of that came out of uh, looking at my own children and looking at how they, they're responding in faith at a young age, but in very different ways. Uh, my son, if I can share this, my son he asks questions and he wants to understand and he needs to talk it through. And my daughter, she's, she's making up songs about Jesus. Uh, doesn't ask the questions in the same way. And just suddenly going, and I said it, I was talking to my dad about it, and he said, ah, it's Hebrews 11, different, different people, the, the faith, they express it, it gets worked out in different ways. And, and that's the reality, we, we said it earlier, that we, we trust Jesus, it's kind of like marriage. We've used this picture before. You choose to get married, and you make that big decision to start being married to someone, but then you go home and you have to start to work it out as well. And, and that's what this idea of faith is. We make the big choice to come to Jesus the first time, to trust him that initial time for salvation, for him to save us. But then in the day-to-day, in relationship with him, we start to work that out. Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we work faith out in the day today as well. And in many ways, that's what we're, we're looking at is most of us in this room, I think, have trusted Jesus. Perhaps some haven't. That's okay. And that's where we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but actually, we're, we're, we're working out the different areas of, of our lives, trying to work out how to trust the Lord Jesus. Uh, and we touched on we're in Hebrews chapter 11. And just, by the way, if you, uh, um, if you notice someone, this is not a very formal gathering, if you haven't noticed. So if you're sitting and, and you have a question or something, I said something too fast, you can stick your hand up and say, Jonathan has done that to me on occasion, which I have very much appreciated. So there's room for back and forth. Uh, if you notice someone next to you who's struggling to find the passage in their Bible, you, you can help them. If you're struggling to find the passage in your Bible, you can tap the person next to you and say, Hey, where is this at? Um, that's okay. That's good, actually. Um, because we want to understand. We want to, to participate together. So we were looking in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, and we actually started in chapter 10, if you remember, because uh, the author of Hebrews quotes from Habakkuk in verse, chapter 10 and verse 38. And he says, My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so the writer of Hebrews brings together these three words in chapter 10 and verse 38. He says, righteousness, my righteous one. He lives by faith. So you've got righteousness and faith. And this, this idea of, of God taking pleasure in or delighting in. And he ties those three things together then in chapter 11 and verse 6. If you skim down to chapter 11 and verse 6, he says, without faith, there's that word faith, it is impossible, sorry, I've just lost my place. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. So we've got faith. We have to have, when you seek God in faith, he takes pleasure in that. And actually, we're going to look at it later. But Abel was, Abel and, and Enoch, was Abel or Enoch? Abel. Abel in verse, in verse 3 was commended, sorry, verse 4, was commended as righteous because he sought God in faith. So the writer brings all of these, these three ideas together. We seek God in faith, and he looks at us and says, yeah, you're righteous, and he delights in us. He's pleased with us. And so verse 6, if you will, gives us a little bit of a road map of how we, of what faith, how faith plays out, how we approach God in, place, in, in faith. And we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. And what the author does, I think, is he's, 6 gives us the road map. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he gives us three examples to show us how those three work out. The first one is in verse 3, is creation. In verse 3, if you look, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. We have to believe he exists. You can't seek God in faith if you don't believe he exists. Number two, Abel is going to show us what it looks like to seek God earnestly. And then Enoch is going to show us what it looks like to delight in God and for God to delight in us in return, to be pleased with us. So that's kind of where we're, we're going this morning. So if you look at me with me in verse uh, 3, and we're going to jump back and forth a little bit to Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. Um, so we'll jump back to Genesis as we go. But verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author is referring back to Genesis chapter 1. Everything that exists has a beginning, a first cause, if you will. Everything that exists, we look around, we see creation. Everything that is has a beginning. At some point it was not. There was nothing. Because what, what is seen was made out of things that are not visible. There was nothing in the beginning, and God created those things. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light. Let there be water. Let there be a division between the space in the, in the sky and the land. God spoke things by his word. He spoke them into existence. That's why the author of Hebrews says, by the word of God, everything was made. And so in a sense... What he's saying is, we look at what is and realize logically there must be something behind it because everything that exists has a cause. I, I was looking at my, we're sitting, we we're talking about this with my children this week, and we're sitting at our kitchen table. And I, I said, because they were trying to work through this, and I said, this, our kitchen, this, our, it's a big wooden farm style kitchen table. And I said to the kids, did this table just appear? And they said, no. Well, who, 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 how do you know that? Well, somebody had to make it. In their little child, children's minds, they understood that this table can't just happen. Somebody made the wood, and then somebody cut the wood and 
planed it down and made it nice, and then somebody had to screw it together, and somebody had to make the screws as well. And, and there, there was a creator behind the table, and in their little five- and seven-year-old minds, they grasped that basic fundamental idea that when something exists, it has to come from somewhere. Something has to cause it. And so the author of Hebrews says, when we look around, that's what, the author, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that creation testifies to the existence of a creator. The things that exist testify to God's existence. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 19, we won't turn there, but Psalm chapter 19, the psalmist personifies creation as, as singing the glory of God. It sings the glory of its creator. It declares his glory. If you turn with me just briefly to Hebrews chapter 1, the very beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Verse 1. The very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Verse 1, chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Long ago... At many times and in many, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by who? By whom? The prophets. But, in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and, this is the key part, through whom he created the world. So sometimes we say that God was God the Father. He, he said, we're going to create a thing. We're going to do it. And Jesus actually did it. He, he, he carried it out. He created the world through Jesus. And he finally reveals himself through Jesus. And so in a sense, the first step of faith is what it says in, in, in verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. We're back in Hebrews 11. Whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists. You have to believe he exists. You need to believe that Jesus exists. And that's, where, that's this first point. That's where I want to end for just a second. Is that God does exist. And the one you need to grapple with, to come to terms with, to seek out, is Jesus. Can I encourage you this morning? If, if, if you've never sought Jesus... That's the first step of faith in God is to seek Jesus because Jesus is God. You need to grapple with Jesus. And creation points that out for us. We see that in the existence of creation and that it points to a creator. Let's look in verse 4 at uh, the witness of Abel. So faith begins with this understanding that there must be a creator, the necessity of a creator. But then we see in the witness of Abel, of Abel that actually the second step of faith is actually that faith sees in creation that there must be a creator, that God exists, believes that God exists, that there's something. Remember, science is the study of what is, what we can see and observe and test. And that's science. So the person behind, whoever's, whatever's behind what is, science, that's not the domain of science anymore. So we must believe that God exists. We look at what is. We see ah, there must be a creator behind this. And an Abel shows us that actually the second step of faith is to start to seek to know that God 
Who is he? Ah, he's, he's, he's revealed himself in Jesus. And to seek Jesus and to expect him to respond. And that's the key. Seek him earnestly and expect him to respond. Just turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis and chapter, chapter 4. We're just going to read briefly the account of Abel, and then we'll come back to Hebrews chapter 11. I told you we were going to flip around a little bit this morning. Hebrews in chapter 4, start, or sorry, Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We'll stop there and turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. Cain and Abel is, is, is an interesting... I remember growing up and, and trying to figure out why did God accept... Abel's gift and not Cain's. And there's lots of theories about, well, it's because Abel brought a, he brought sheep and, and, and Cain brought fruit and sheep were more acceptable to God. And some someone's other theories, Abel, he, he prepared his better. He worked harder and Cain didn't work as hard and he just gave his leftover fruit and Abel must have brought the firstborn and the, the best sheep and... Uh, and actually, the author in Genesis doesn't actually tell us specifically why. It just says that God had regard for Abel's gift, and he didn't for Cain's. And then he does tell us what Cain's response was. We're going to come back to Cain's response in just a minute. But actually, if we look in Hebrews chapter 11, he gives us a sense, and I think this is where verse 6 is really important. But read with me in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. He tells us the answer. Why did God accept Abel's gift and not Cain's? Because Abel offered his gift by faith. And if we go back to verse 6, we could deduce a couple of things. That means that Abel must have come believing that God exists, earnestly seeking him and expecting him to respond. That's what verse 6 says. That's how faith works. Faith that pleases God. Which means Cain didn't do that. We'll talk about Cain in a minute. But what can we learn from Abel? Can I suggest to you that the way that Abel came to God was in a wholehearted faith. He was seeking God for God. 
That's what faith, that's what this, this, this faith that seeks God looks like. It comes to God and it's just, it's desiring to see God and wants a response. The difference, perhaps, is when we come to God and we come to him as a means to an end. Let me, let me give, give him this sacrifice or do this for him so he'll bless me in return. God's a little bit of a, a slot machine. We come to God and we don't expect a response, perhaps. We come to Him as a means to an end. We come to Him not, respecting, not expecting a response, not expecting relationship with Him. We simply do it as a religious ritual or something. Yeah? But Abel comes, he comes this wholehearted, earnestly expecting a response. I was thinking about what, what that, that feel, what's that, 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 that mindset like? Have you ever, sometimes I lose things in my house. And sometimes I lose something and I'm pretty sure that it's not in my house. I'm pretty sure that I've lost it for good. But I, I'm like, I need to do due diligence and I've got to look for it anyway. And so my search, my, my, my emotional state as I'm looking for it is kind of like, uh, I give up easily. I just, uh, I'm not enjoying the search. Um, do, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? You're pretty sure it's not there. You got to look for it anyway. You get frustrated easily. You get angry. Not, why can't I find it? But then there's this, I know, I just, the other side of looking for it, I know I saw this two days ago. It's here somewhere. I just need to look and I know I'm going to find it. Do you know that state as well? Yeah. And I think that's the difference, in a sense, between Cain and Abel. Abel came seeking God wholeheartedly, expecting to find him, expecting him to respond. The biblical language for some of that, we find that in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. He says, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 16, apart from you, I have no good thing. When you look at God and go, he is the only good thing I can have. I'm going to seek him and find and seek him diligently until I find him, until he answers me. Let's just look at Cain just briefly before we try and apply that to our own lives. We don't, we're not specifically told. We've sort of, we've thought about perhaps... Cain somehow wasn't seeking in faith. He, wasn't, he didn't bring his offering in faith. That's the distinction. Abel did. Cain didn't. The author doesn't tell us. I don't want to speculate too much. But the reality is everybody has faith in something. Nobody trusts in nothing. Everybody trusts in something. And so if Cain didn't have faith in God, it means he had faith in Something else. Ultimately, that means probably means he had faith in himself. He had faith in himself. Which is where we get to this idea of seeking God as a means to an end. I want God to bless me, so I'm going to try and do all the right things and make sure I say the right words and do them in the right way and read my Bible 20 minutes a day so that he will have to bless me. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but we get into the domain of religious ritual and superstition even. If I don't do this, well, God's not going to bless me. Mm -hmm. 
And we see actually by Cain's response, actually that's in a sense, that's the proof that he didn't actually come to God in faith. He's angry when God didn't accept his gift. Friends, can I suggest to you this morning that the Lord Jesus wants to show you when you're not trusting the right thing. We talked about, you know, you've got the big, the big decision to trust Jesus. I'm going to start trusting him now. And then you get the day today. I've got to work that out. And he says, hey, you're not trusting me with your money, with your finances. Hey, you're not trusting me with your children. Hey, you're not trusting me with your marriage. Hey, you're not trusting me with your job. And he wants to show us those things. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when he shows us those things, my first, sometimes he does it, in, he corrects us. Sometimes there's, a, there's some discipline involved. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is proof that we belong to him, that we're his children. And sometimes he shows us, he corrects us. And my first response, I don't know about you, is to respond in frustration, anger, a little bit like Cain. But actually what he wants from us is repentance. That's what, that's what, that's, repentance simply means to stop trusting the thing you are trusting and to start trusting Jesus. To stop trusting the thing you are trusting and to start trusting Jesus. I had this in my life this week. We prayed about it earlier, I told Dre. But I had, I had two Sort of small things. I, I, I played in this, this, this restaurant on Saturday night, but I was prepping for it all week. I was really stressed about it. But then I also, I'm building a shed in the back garden, and it was raining, and my wood was getting wet. I'm like, I need to get this finished. And I was pretty stressed about that as well. And actually, it became really clear to me at the end of the week that I was trusting me and my ability to get things done and not trusting Jesus. And the, and the reason I knew that was because I was so stressed out about it. And it was affecting my family as well. And that's why we prayed through some of those things earlier, because if you've got fear in your life, if you've got anxiety in your life, if you've got worry and stress, if you've got shame in your life, those are areas where I think the Lord wants to put his finger on those things and say, hey, I want you to trust me here. Because actually, it's way better for you. It's way better for you. But sometimes it's like, it's start, it's like starting to use a muscle you've never used before. It's like, oh, what? How, how, I don't. After you've done something for a while, you start to go, oh, this, yeah, this feels right. I used to play baseball as a pitcher, and I, I would, I would throw the ball, and I was, I had pretty good aim. But sometimes, I, in the middle of a game, I'd start to miss, and the coach on the sideline, sometimes my dad would say, go back to whatever you were doing before, find the thing that 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 groove that feels right. And when you start doing something, when you start trusting Jesus for the first time in a new area, you go, oh, what, what, how does this work? What is it? How, how do I actually do this? I got to talk to him. I got to seek him. Yeah. He wants to call you to trust him in those areas of your life where there's fear, shame, worry, guilt, perhaps. He wants us to respond like David, actually. And not like Cain. David in Psalm 51. Let me just read it just briefly. If you remember the, the, the story of David in Bathsheba, he sinned, committed adultery with 
Bathsheba. And then the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, confronted him pretty... That was a pretty rough confrontation. And David's response in Psalm 51 is this. Just listen to these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The call, the witness of Abel is, to, is for us, the call is for us to respond to God like Abel, like David, not like Cain, and to trust the right things. Are you seeking the Lord Jesus for the first time? Perhaps you, that's where you are. You're seeking him for the first time. You're at the beginning of your journey. And the witness of Abel, what the author wants, wants you to hear this morning, I think, is, is keep, keep seeking him. Keep earnestly seeking him. He's there. He wants you to seek him. He wants to be found. He will respond. Keep seeking him out. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're someone who you haven't heard from him in a while. Maybe you've given up. Friends, we have a good father in heaven. He wants to be found. He's there. Keep seeking him. Keep seeking him in prayer. Keep seeking him through his word. Keep seeking him in the gathering of of other believers. He speaks to us here as well. Be like Abel, not like Cain. Uh, Our last example this morning is Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 5, Enoch's a fascinating character. Bit, 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 a bit mythical, actually. If you look in, in sort of Jewish writings afterwards, he became a bit of a, a sort of a mythical, legendary figure in a sense. But here's what it says in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was found, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So if creation helps us understand the first step of faith is to believe that God exists, and Abel helps us to understand what it looks like to earnestly seek him and to expect a response, Enoch takes that third step of what does it look like to delight in God and for him to delight to be pleased with us. Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 5. And just read the account of Enoch's life. It's very short. But you can kind of see why it it sort of catches our attention. Chapter 5 and verse 21. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Who knows Methuselah? Why is Methuselah important? Jonathan, tell us. Oldest person in the Bible. Bible. Methuselah, if you skip down a few years, lived 969 years. Enoch, when he had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Fascinating. If you notice, all of the other names in that, in that list are 
700, 800, 900 years. Enoch lived 365 years. He was a young chicken in comparison. 365 years, and he did what? What was the, what was the, 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 the defining description of his life? He walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. It's that wonderful picture of walking with God. I don't know if you've ever... My wife and I love walking and talking together. Paul, I know, walks with people and talks with people. And your neighbor, you were doing that for a while. But there's this, there's this thing that happens when we journey together, when we walk together on foot through nature, wherever it's at, and you walk and you talk and you respond to each other. Oh, should we go that? Oh, let's go this way. And, and you're wandering together. And there's this picture of intimacy with the person you're walking with. And it says it twice in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch walked with God. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that, that Enoch was commended as having pleased God. You see, he'd, he'd, he'd done the third step. He had believed that God existed. He had earnestly sought Him. And friends, he had found Him as well. He delighted in Him. He looked at God and said, apart from you, I have no good thing. And in fact, every good thing that exists ultimately comes from you. And so I want to seek you. And it's the picture of walking together. He walked with God. We get that picture again in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And, and God says, it, it boggles my mind. But God is dealing, He's about to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's nephew, Lot, is living in that city. And God says, should I, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? That I'm about to destroy the city where his nephew is living. And he includes Abraham in the conversation. And Abraham, he deals with God in a sense. God, we will not destroy it if there's even 100 people living there, 100 righteous people. What if there's only 80? Abraham knows there's only one. Maybe. What if there's only 50? What if there's only 10? And he, uh, it, it, it just, the, the intimacy that, that God includes Abraham in it. It's the picture of walking with God. We see it with Moses in Exodus. Exodus in chapter 33. Moses used to meet with God face to face as a man meets with his friend. And then Moses makes this astounding request of God. He says, will you show me your face? Will you show me your glory? And God says, you can't see my face because no living man can see my face and live. But I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and pass by you and you can see my back. Oh. Friends, that's the intimacy that Enoch had, I suspect. It's the intimacy that Abraham had. It's the intimacy that... Moses had. Friends, it's the intimacy that we can have. The New Testament picks up this language of walking with God. And the command is to walk by the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit. If you look in Romans chapter 8, just briefly. Chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4.
chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation. No one can condemn you for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order, here it is in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But according to the Spirit. And if you skip down to verse 8, it ties it back in. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, it, friends, it says we walk in the Spirit. When you trust Jesus for the first time, you get His Holy Spirit in you. He puts the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, inside you. It's, a, it's astounding. It's absolutely marvelous. The Spirit of the God of the universe is in each one of us. And then the command is keep, keep being filled, keep being, getting more of Him, being more under His control, walking more in step with the Spirit. That's the picture. Ah, you're slightly out of step. Walk in step with the Holy Spirit at His rhythm. Let Him guide you. And in so doing, we please God. He delights in us as we delight in Him. And that's the picture of Enoch. Enoch is seven generations. If you remember Adam and Eve... We contrasted Abel with Cain. And actually, Enoch has a contrast as well. Enoch is, sorry, Adam and Eve had three sons that we're told about. They had other ones as well, sons and daughters. They had Cain, and they had Abel. Abel died, and they had a third, Seth. Enoch is the seventh generation in the line of Seth. If we step back and look at the seventh generation in the line of Cain, we get to this other person, this other person called Lamech. In Genesis chapter 4, if you flip back there with me just briefly, Genesis chapter 4. If Enoch is a picture of what it looks like to walk with and delight in God, Lamech is a picture of what it looks like to walk in, his, in your own strength. If we can just contrast those just briefly. Lamech in verse 18. Methushael, not Methuselah, Methushael fathered Lamech. And then in verse 19. And Lamech was noted because he took two wives. The name of one was Adah and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jebel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Nama. And then in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, the Lamech's is 77. Lamech is the picture of walking by your own strength. 
walking by there's a, a, a walking by the light of his own his own his own torch to take the language of Isaiah chapter 50 he walks by the light of his own torch rather than by the light that Jesus provides and if you remember from Romans chapter 8 and verse 8, those who walk in the flesh, walk by the light of their own torch, who walk in their own strength, we can't please God. It's impossible to please God. And so if I can go back just briefly, if Cain was, was the, the, the counterexample of what it looks like to seek God without faith, to try and please God through ritual and religion and superstition. Lamech, is, Lamech is, is, the, is the counter picture of what it looks like to just ignore God and seek to please yourself. He took two wives. He boasts in, in, in killing a man because he insulted him. The, the amount of pride, God put a, a curse on Cain and said, if anyone shall hurt you, to protect him, if anyone shall hurt you, he will be cursed seven times. And Lamech says, if Cain was cursed seven times, then Lamech's curse is 77 times. A pride in himself, the self-confidence. Enoch is the picture of what it looks like to delight in God. I keep saying, everybody trusts something. I think we can use that with this idea of delighting, of enjoying. Everybody delights, enjoys something. Are you enjoying Jesus? Because my suspicion is, is that if you're not enjoying Jesus, you're actually busy enjoying something else. You're getting, we, our hearts, our souls crave joy. And so if you're not enjoying Jesus, you're getting your joy from somewhere else. Maybe you're getting it from your family, children, spouse, partner. Maybe you're getting joy from the success in your career. Maybe you're getting it from a hobby, from a pastime. Maybe you're getting it from, I don't know. Are you getting your joy from Jesus? Are you enjoying him? Or are you getting your joy, you're delighting in something else, living for yourself? I just want to make two notes about Abel and about Enoch. We skipped a part with Abel. At the end of verse 4, chapter 11 of verse 4. Remember, Abel was murdered by his brother. And if you remember back in Genesis, God says to Cain, Abel's, Abel's blood is still crying out from the ground. In chapter 11... In verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, it's not Abel's blood that's crying out from the ground. It's actually his faith that's speaking, that's still speaking. Friends, faith is the only legacy worth having. It's a legacy that speaks from beyond the grave. It outlasts us. In part because we transmit it to the next generation as well. Parents, grandparents, we're part of a, a local church as well. We have an influence on the next generation. They're out with Emma. She's busy transmitting her faith to the next generation. But faith is the only legacy worth having. Faith in Jesus. And actually, in the next chapter, 
Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. The author of Hebrew, Hebrews comes back to Abel's blood. Chapter 12 and verse 24 says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks of the brokenness of this world. But the blood of Jesus speaks of redemption and salvation and hope and peace and a future. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The blood of humans speaks of brokenness, but the blood of Jesus speaks of redemption. And we trust in Him. And actually, if we look then at Enoch, Enoch's faith not only speaks from beyond the grave, he was taken, he never tasted death. Friends, true faith, genuine faith, faith that delights in God and that God which makes God delight in us, it actually doesn't just speak from beyond the grave, it overcomes the grave because of the blood of Jesus. When we trust in Jesus' blood and His sacrifice on the cross, when we trust that He really did rise from the dead and He's alive right now and we can know Him personally, that kind of faith saves us from death and from sin as well. And Enoch points us in that direction. He walked with God God delighted in him, and he was no more. He was, he was, the word is translated. He was, God took him. He never tasted death. Hebrews 11, verse 6, says that, has that language of, I've been using the language of God responds to us, but verse 6 says that he rewards those who seek him. And I think there are genuine rewards, not just the fact that actually finding that God is there and he responds, but he actually does reward. We've talked about them. He gives us his Holy Spirit. It's the best gift he could give. He saves us from death. He gives us new life beyond a new body we have to look forward. Anyone getting tired of their body breaking down? My voice is a wreck this morning, and I'm looking forward to having a voice in the next life in which I can praise and talk and sing and it never gets tired. We look forward to that. As we close this morning, let me end with that, that phrase in verse 6, without faith. Are you trying to, by your efforts, without faith, are you trying to please God? Perhaps like Cain, and I think we have different tendencies. But like Cain, are you, are, you, are you engaged in trying to please God through trying to do enough things? Trying to earn His approval by keeping the rules? Perhaps you're trying to please Him by, oh, I need to spend 30 minutes every day reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is good. But when we approach it as a formula to get God to like us, that's not faith. I've got to pray for 25 minutes a day. If I pray for 24, God's not going to be happy with me. No, friends. Perhaps like Lamech, your temptation is to simply live for yourself. I know this isn't going to help me. I know the Lord won't be pleased with this, but right now it feels good. I'm just going to do it anyway. Friends, we want to live like Abel, like Lamech.
I'd rather, in a sense, that you read your, your Bible once a week and you come away with a burning heart like the disciples did in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus opened the word to them and they understood it. I'd rather you have that experience once a week than you read it 30 minutes every day with a cold, stony heart. Don't make a rule out of that, but you get my point. We can't manipulate God. We come to him in faith. We believe he exists. We seek him earnestly, expecting him to respond. We delight in him.